Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 13, Light Counters Chaos. Is pain and sickness the result of someone's sin? Is our worldview too simplistic? What is the significance of Jesus touching a blind man? This week, Steve answers these questions and more from a study of John chapter 9. We spent quite a bit of time the last two weeks, uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8, which really are, are a continuous episode with, a, with, with a, a break with the woman caught in adultery. But uh, we watched the buildup of tension and conflict. Uh, we talked a lot about the powers that be, how the, how the religious leaders were, were really representative in John's writing of, of the demonic powers, the powers that be. And now we come to a different kind of chapter. There's like a break. Chapter 9 is a very self-contained narrative, and it was really, really carefully structured by John. And again, we're going to look at it at some different levels tonight, and in fact, for the first time, we're going to almost, at one point, look at it almost devotionally. But um, it's a story, chapter 9 is a story of how a man moved from darkness to light, both physically and spiritually. And this is a story filled with irony because it starts with a blind man who gains his sight and at the very end it finishes with the Pharisees who have become totally spiritually blind. Um, this chapter is filled with some various key themes. For example, uh, again, the juxtaposition between light and darkness, which we, we talked about last week. Uh, the power of fear is, I think, a huge theme. Spiritual blindness uh, versus truly seeing. Um, this chapter 9 centers around, in John's Gospel, what is called the sixth sign, which is the healing of a man born blind. It's the only healing we have that we're told specifically of someone who was born blind. There's many healings of blind people. But this is, John goes out of his way to say, this guy was blind his whole life. And it's the sixth sign. And, and just to review, chapter 2, the first one was when he changed the water into wine. Chapter 4 was the healing of the official son. Chapter 5, we talk quite a lot about, was the paralytic who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. Chapter 6 was the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, chapter 6 was also uh, walking on water. So these are the five signs that come up before this one. So let's read uh, tonight, John 9, the first 12 verses. And again, could I get somebody with a good loud voice so it picks up on the microphone uh, to read verses 1 through 12? As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? 
And someone said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Well, thanks, Cookie. Um, I want to talk about a few themes within the different sections of this chapter. I think John is dealing with a worldview that he thinks is, is incorrect, and in one sense a rather simplistic worldview that, frankly, we still encounter all the time. So right away in verse 2, they see a blind man, and so they make an assumption. It's a worldview assumption. They say, well, Jesus, who sinned? Was it, was it him, himself, or his parents? Uh, there's an assumption of sin equals sickness. This is not uncommon, even in the 21st century for us. This is a comfortable assumption to make, that sin equals sickness, if you happen to be healthy. And if your life is going well, this, this worldview makes us feel more confident and comfortable with ourselves. Oh, I must be doing well with God because my life is going well. Um, but if it's not going well, and if we're struggling, it, it, it's easy to slip into shame. I remember, oh golly, uh, 25 plus years ago, pastoring uh, up in Canada and there was a, a, a church that really was teaching that um, if you're sick, you don't have enough faith, you're not pressing in enough and what used to happen every once in a while we would have sick people come to our church who not only had chronic sickness but they had because of this worldview they assumed that they were deficient Christians that they didn't have enough faith, that they, they weren't living holy enough. And it's, it's not a, a, some of, we've all heard this. Um, verses 3 and 4 is Jesus' response. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works. By the way, the word there is ergon, E-R-G-O-N, and it's a word that John uses again and again and again uh, in his gospel. We must do the ergon, the works of him who sent me while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. I think there's a lot to unpack here, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of it, but I'll bet if we spent time talking together, we would be able to go deeper and deeper into what Jesus is saying. So they're saying, he's sick, he must have sinned, or his parents must have sinned. And Jesus, his response, I think, says this. He says, fellas, the world is way more complex than that. There isn't just this cause and effect. And, um, and the world is not only complex, but there's a lot of darkness. And... Uh, your question is, makes two simple assumptions. I think secondly, he's saying God's light of justice and mercy shines brighter than what they're assuming. That God's hands are not tied because somebody is a sinner or his parents sinned. Um, you know, if you've got that view, 
that uh, disability must come from God, and I still hear that all the time, especially when I teach on, on healing in various places. Somebody always words a question so that it comes to this point. Well, doesn't disability come from God? Well, if we have that worldview, I think that we're assuming God's like us in our worst yeah. instances. You know, an eye for an eye. I actually once had, I was teaching pastors in Haiti for four days, and it was right after the earthquake, and it was an incredible time of, of openness, but of great pain. And uh, after four days, I said, uh, let's talk, let's have some questions. Nowadays, by the way, I would never go four days, but you learn from your mistakes. <laughs> and besides one or two goofy questions, somebody asked this, so now that you've taught us about healing, and this goes back to this worldview of God, if you pray for somebody and they get healed, I go, yeah. And then you ask them if they want to receive the Lord and they say no. How do you take that healing back? Oh. Oh. This was from a pastor. And that's how much our worldview of, can be skewed about the nature of God. We see him as a judge rather than a merciful father. Um, and I think what he's saying here is connected, really, that God, this happened so that, that God could be glorified. I think it's connected with Romans 8, 28. You know, he works all things together for good. It's not that God made the man blind, but, but that he knew that there, he was at that Kairos time when he would reveal his glory and his mercy and power. I feel like God was waiting for that Kairos time. Um, John uses the word ergon 18 times in this gospel. That means works. The works of God is what Jesus came to do. And if you want to make some notes, some really interesting kind of cross-reference on the concept. It's a different word. But he says, remember way back in Luke 2, he's 12 years old. He's in the temple. His mom and dad lose track of him for three days. They find him. And he said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? The works of my father. And in fact, what I love is uh, the parable of the minus. It's similar to the parable of the talents. Matthew tells the talents, Luke tells the minus. But as, as the, the Lord uh, says to these guys, he gives them minus, money. He says, do business till I come. Mm -hmm. And this word, ergon, is all about that. You know, later we're going to hear, you know, that it's his food. It feeds him, his own spirit, to be about his father's business. Then we get to verse 5, <clears throat> excuse me, and he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Have we heard that before? We heard it in the prologue. Uh, we, we heard it previously, two weeks ago. John sends us back to the prologue, verses 4 and 5. For those of you, who it's, this is your first week, the prologue is, is John 1, 1 to 18. And the prologue 4 5 says, Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Again, John is writing with a great awareness, almost a parallel in places, to the creation story. 
remember a few weeks ago? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He purposely starts within the beginning. Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So we go back to this on the light theme, because it's really interesting. What was God confronted with at the very beginning? Darkness and chaos. And what was his response? Let there be light. That light counters chaos. And that's absolutely in John's mind. When he has, he's quoting Jesus at different times through this gospel, I am the light of the world. John is keeping us from the simplistic worldview of the disciples that pain and sickness must be the result of someone's sin. It, is, it makes me sad um, how pervasive that view is among Christians. Um, God's calling us up to, uh, to a higher place, to the mystery surrounding creation and surrounding the cosmos. You know, just parenthetically, um, one of the things I teach on prayer, when we pray, we often think there's two parties involved, us and God. But there's three parties involved, us and God and the enemy. Powers that be, Satan, and if you want to look at that yourself, you can go to Daniel 10, it's the best example I know of. Daniel is crying out and praying and fasting for 21 days, and the angel shows up, and Daniel says, What gives? I've been going for 21 days. And he says, I've been wrestling with the prince of Persia. And of course, the, the powers that be over the nation of Persia would be fighting against Daniel's prayer, because Daniel is saying, Wow, set us free. God, take us back to Jerusalem. But they were a slave people in Persia at that time. They were slave labor, cheap labor. So there's a practical and a supernatural, and it belongs absolutely together. Just as a reminder, last week I taught you about the powers that be and how they absolutely infiltrate all our structures. Do you remember that? I said that every institution is created by God with a God-given purpose. It originates in the heart of God, and He calls it into being. And whenever that institution leaves its purpose, its, its vocation, theologians call it, to a selfish purpose, selfishness always leads to idolatry, idolatry, <coughs> always opens the door to the demonic. That's just to review last week. Okay, so God is making his new creation, and he writes of this, God is making his new creation out of the chaos and the pain of this world. And I absolutely believe that. If we have a faith that denies the pain, that denies the confusion, that denies the mystery, if we live out our faith with, I've got the victory, hallelujah, everything's great, brother. <laughs> we are not far from where these disciples were. Who, who sinned, this guy or the other guy? Because there's got to be a cause and effect. We live in the midst of mystery. Right? I've quoted twice this series, uh, St. Augustine, who said, if you understand God, then he isn't God. <laughs> All right. The second thing I want us to see in these first 12 verses is the power of touch. And I want to acknowledge Jean Vanier. I wrote a wonderful devotional. 
And uh, I just was loving it. And so I, I brought that into this. The disciples talk about the man. Oh, they see the guy. They see the blind man. They don't go to him. They talk about him. Right? Who <coughs> sinned, etc. It is very easy for us to observe the life of another and yet keep distant. Very easy. And uh, Jesus meets them where they are. He doesn't scold them. He answers their question. But then he uses their very question to push things further. And then he turns, he turns his attention fully to the blind man. The difference between talking about the blind man and giving himself fully is, is I think, the key in, this, in these few verses. Like the lepers in first century Palestine, like the lepers, like the maimed, the blind lived a terrible existence. Did you know they were restricted from entering beyond the outer court of the Gentiles, the temple? They couldn't enter into regular temple life. Um, they lived under the shadow of the worldview of blessings and curses coming as rewards and consequences. That's what they lived with. And you know it's interesting. This just this second it occurs to me. With that worldview, people see a blind man and they say, oh yeah, well, he, he must deserve it. He must deserve it. If I had a dollar for every time when I talk about the poor and justice that I've heard from believers, well, yeah, it's just they deserve it. They don't, they don't work hard. They don't have good work ethic, etc. just occurred to me. And that's just speaking the truth. I hear, I've heard it so much. And in fact, I just saw a recent study that said Christians are way more intolerant than non-Christians of the poor. Isn't that just dreadful? In North America. I didn't know I'd go down that road. It just occurred to me. But it's the same thing. You can talk about them. If you stigmatize them, you don't have to touch them. You can just, well, they got it coming. But Jesus touches the man, just like he touched the leper in Mark 1. Remember? If you're willing, you can make me whole. He touches him. Touch is about awareness. Touch says, I see you. It brings presence and it brings connection. When I spend time among the poor, I often encounter people that live as if they were invisible. It's like nobody notices them. Just check it out when you walk downtown. You walk in the war zone, you walk along some parts of Central. You'll see the invisible. That people just walk by. Touch is about awareness. It says, I see you. Touch expresses tenderness and care. It's really important. Touch heals. Both in physical healing, because I think we have a lot more to learn about the laying on of hands from what... The, the biblical perspective. But maybe even more than physical healing, touch heals in social, psychological, and emotional healing. If I touch, then I cannot walk by the one on the side of the road. The, the Jericho story has always been one of the most profound of all for me. Remember in Luke 10. And they walked by the one on the side of the road. I've told you before, the Jericho Road was only eight feet wide. That story is filled with irony. If I say I'm going to touch, then I cannot walk by. You know what's interesting? 
We're wired to defend ourselves, usually by just putting up a, more of a shell, to defend ourselves when we're confronted with people's coldness or distance or harshness toward us. Um, but did you know we're also hardwired to open ourselves up when we face tenderness? And touch is about tenderness and care. Tenderness never hurts the weak or the vulnerable. And touch expresses value and respect. Touch shouts, I see the beauty in you. I see God in you. I think it was St. Francis of Assisi who said at his core, uh, to be godlike is to learn to admire people. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of something we can think about, maybe talk about in a little bit. But that, that just jumped at me from him. that others talk about? Society talks about? Christians and non-Christians talk about that Jesus went and touched. Some of my most profound memories, um, and, and I think many of you know, by the, by the mysterious grace of God, He's let me see incredible miracles again and again and again, right? I, I blind eyes, deaf ears, paralyzed, get up and walk, and on and on and on. But some of the moments that most stick with me, and this is being very truthful, even more than some of those amazing miracles, the ones that really stick with me are the times I just, I didn't know what to do except to just hold on to somebody as they cried and cried and cried and I cried. Oh, I remember holding on to a transvestite one night and he just wept and wept and wept and I just held him and held him and held him because I didn't have any answers for his brokenness and his drug addiction and his, it's just devastated life. But something deep happened for me. Or sitting on a bamboo hut floor with a woman who who just had her husband go to jail for six years and she had no money and she didn't know if he would survive jail. And I didn't have any answers. I couldn't say, oh, do this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. I couldn't talk about it. All I could do was just hold it. It's just funny to me that those are the things that stick with me in the midst of the miracles and the, the travel. This week's episode is brought to you by Our Journey of Compassion to Kenya. Here at Impact Nations, we work with two remarkable apostolic men, Randeep Matthews and Mike Brown. Randeep leads a massive house church movement in northern India where they're baptizing hundreds of people at a time. In Kenya, Mike rescues people from gangs, prostitution, prison, and drug addiction. He introduces them to Jesus and then helps them become self-sufficient with their own small business. Well, from October 14th to the 26th, Randeep will be leading a journey of compassion to Kenya. You will have the unique opportunity to minister with Steve, Randeep, and Mike all at once. These 12 days in Africa will change your life forever. Visit impactnations.org slash JOC to learn more. And now, back to the podcast. Let's move on and talk a little bit about the power of fear. I need somebody else to read in a clear voice. Let's go on and do verses 13 through verse 23. 
They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he would receive his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I watched, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see now? His parents answered, we, now, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know how, who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. This is an incredible scene. Imagine, I, I look around, I think most of us uh, are parents. And I, uh, the pain, if I had a child who was born blind, that would be a, a difficult thing. And then if suddenly, the, who, we assume he was a, well he was a man, you know, now he's hit adulthood. And he can see, and yet what we see here is the power of fear, stronger than their incredible joy that their son just got his sight. Um, notice once again, verse 13, Jesus was at it again. Did he heal him on a Tuesday or a Friday? <laughs> on the Sabbath. Remember we talked about Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is the temple. He is holy space. He is holy time. Do you remember that? So, let's talk about the power of fear. Fear of something new. I want to talk about <coughs> fear towards some different people. Let's talk about the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They were afraid of something new. Something, uh, fear of something new is at the center. And the following encounter that goes on is all about fear. Remember, I told you before, the Pharisees are illustrative of the powers that be. They represent what we just talked about, the, the moving from God's purpose. The powers are always threatened by anything that challenges the status quo and will always resist it. You can take that to the bank. There's no exception. Let me say it again. The powers are always threatened by anything that challenges the status quo and will always resist it. The powers that be are unable to embrace anything new unless it strengthens their position. Um, they deny the evidence, no matter how strong it is. They've got a man, everybody knew he was a beggar, everybody knew who he was. He probably had his corner. He was blind and now he could see. And it says in verse 18, the Jews did not believe him. You could say refused to believe him. And so what do they do? They're saying, no, this couldn't be. Da, 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 da. So then they up the intimidation. They get his parents in here. 
So the parents are brought in. And here's the, here's the thing he, he, they say to them, the one that you say was born blind. Everybody knew he was blind, but now it's, it's them against the parents. The one that you say is born blind. It is interesting that the Pharisees could handle attack and pressure from the outside world. They could handle it, the pressure from the Romans, for crying out loud. If there's anybody who knew how to put pressure on society, it was the Romans. They could handle that, but not from within. Isn't that interesting? I think when we see discord, when we see pressure building within any organization, you start looking carefully at the spiritual level, at the, at the, the powers that be, mm -hmm. and not just human personalities. Mm -hmm. So let's, uh, let's read verses 20 to 23 again. Okay, could somebody read that one more time, please? <clears throat> the parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Here is, John is pinpointing what this fear is. As I said, you can imagine the joy of their son can now see. But as, as joyful as they were, even more powerful is the fear of exclusion. We have a deep primal fear of not belonging, of being put out of whatever our group is. It's absolutely primal. So, like chapter 8, this is a story about the powers in our world, our society, and in our own lives. Dark powers that operate through fear and anxiety and intimidation. And in verse 28, it says they ridiculed. So they use that too. These powers seek to blind us to the light of God's true activity. Do you see the juxtaposition in how John has created, put together this narrative? Jesus declaring light, and we're seeing this incredible push of darkness. Do you guys agree that there's something so primal, uh, the fear of being excluded, not being included? It's, it's deep, isn't it? It's deep. It goes all the way back to that need for security. Okay, so we'll get to the next section here. And he talks about choice, how important choice is, and that we ultimately you cannot avoid choice. It was Billy Graham who said, not to choose is a choice. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's look at verses 34 to 41. And could I get somebody to read that out for us nice and loudly, please? 34 through 41. They answered him, You were born of utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, 
And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say you see, your guilt remains. Great. Thank you. This is a really interesting point. What we see here, he gets, he gets thrown out, right? It happens. The threat becomes a reality. This is the first man in all the New Testament, the first man in the Gospels, to be rejected and persecuted because of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. The first one. John is presenting us once again with the theme of choice. Now, as a sighted man, I told you how miserable his existence was in first century Palestine as a blind man. But now he can see all the possibilities change. And, uh, and so his whole future is changed right now. He could, have, he could have had a good life in Jewish society. Right? I mean, he could have got on the, on the talking tour. <laughs> I was blind and now I see. I just thought of that. That's being a little bit ridiculous. But uh, he could have, he now could have had total acceptance in the Jewish society, the very people that just walked by him and saw him as somebody invisible. Um, so no more would he be invisible, would he be walked by, would he be ignored? No more would he be unworthy to worship in the temple. Now, uh, now he, no more would he be seen as a, an object of God's judgment. So this is what just opened up to him. He could finally have the acceptance he probably sat there dreaming of for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And so the cost of the choice he makes right here um, is almost unimaginably high. I don't, I don't know that we have words for the intensity of this moment. Because he's not just saying, well, I'm going to follow Jesus instead of the Pharisees. He, 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 all of what he could have, he just turned his back on. All of it. Instead, he chose the truth. He chose the one who he had heard say <clears throat> earlier that day, I am the light. The man was rejecting the lie of the system. He was rejecting the lie of the powers, the lie that denied who Jesus is, the lie that said they held the truth. Jesus never said, I hold the truth. He said, I am the truth. In choosing to believe and follow Jesus, the man was pushing against the incredible weight of the powers that be. John challenges us to remain true to the one who would later, in John 14, just spell it out. I am the way and the truth and the life. John is saying in chapter 9, look at this man. It cost him everything, more than any of us could imagine. It wasn't just, well, I'm not going to go to the synagogue anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus. All of what I just shared. And with the weight of that, 
That's what he chose. And he challenges us, and this is something that is very real to me and, and maybe to some of you. He challenges us to hold on to him as the truth, to what he said. And remember, I've told you before, I believe it is easier to believe in Jesus than believe in what he said. And he challenges us to speak the truth of what he said, even if it puts us outside the camp. And I would say that sometimes in our life, if we're going to speak his truth, not our opinion, if we're going to speak his truth revealed in the Gospels, it will inevitably put us outside the camp. Mm-hmm. Secondly, because Jesus has come as the light of the world, because he came as the light, his very coming causes the world to be divided. There is a division. Those who come to the light uh, and allow it to change and direct them versus those who resist the light and choose to remain in the false comfort of familiar darkness. Our darkness is familiar and therefore we're comfortable with it. Whatever it may be. It can be our addictions, it can be our sin, it can be our thought patterns. Our darkness is familiar, and so we can be comfortable with it. So you've got those who choose to come to the light and let it change them. If you come to the light, it changes you and it directs you. And if we go, John 3.19 said, And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world... But people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. So he asks them a key question in verse 35, and it's probably the the climactic verse in this chapter. He looks at the man who has the weight of this incredible choice in front of him, and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, He'd already heard, he'd all, the man had already declared that Jesus was a prophet. Remember verse 17. But now he's invited to take a step beyond healer and prophet. He says, I believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. I think we are in a time where the Spirit of God is calling us further up. And one of the themes you'll see in John, you see it in Matthew, is this movement from teacher to Lord, Messiah. And you see the people who make that transition and the people who don't. They start with rabbi, teacher, rabbi. They're, they're, uh, Judas is the classic. If you look at the beginning of John, Matthew is in the calling, they call him rabbi. He's a teacher. But, but they, he, they had this growing revelation. The pinnacle is um, Matthew 16, 16, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But look at John in the arrest of Jesus. Look at Matthew, Matthew 26. 
Judas comes and he kisses him. And what's he say? Hail, Rabbi. Now, I'm telling you, I'm convinced that the 21st century church has got an awful lot of folks in it who've never really made the transition from Rabbi to Lord. Mm. I don't say that to criticize. I just say, I just think it's the truth. Because when we make that transition, a rabbi teaches me, so I learn more. A rabbi empowers me. Knowledge is power. A rabbi makes me feel good about learning more. It's about me. But a Lord, it's all about Him. And that transition, I think John's telling us, just like this blind man, that transition costs us. Especially by the scales of the powers that be. I kind of went into a preach that I didn't plan on. (laughs) I believe the Lord and He worshipped Him. This is the point to which John has been taking us. This is where he wants us to end up. This is the goal of his gospel. This verse 35. And if you want to make a note of chapter 20, verse 31, John says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. So, what it means to know him is another theme in this last passage we've read. What it really means. Jesus said, verse 39, a a verse that has intrigued me for years. He said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Now, is that enigmatic or what? And then verse 40, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, well, we aren't blind too, are we? And he says, if you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sinned. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So let's try to unpack these few verses. I came into this world for judgment. Yet... Elsewhere, the, the clearest is John twelve forty seven. He said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I remember reading these two verses 41 years ago and going, huh? <laughs> this is what I think he's saying. Jesus brought judgment, not because that was his goal or purpose, but because his coming brought both an invitation and a choice. And people are judged by their choices. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's not him sitting as the judge, but he causes a decision. And people are judged by their decisions, their choices. And then this passage talks to us about the, the contrast between those who receive the light and those who reject it. I have told you for weeks, John doesn't waste a verse. I don't think he wastes a word. And he structures so beautifully and carefully and deeply. And I want you to see something that you might not have noticed. Through this passage, he's he's shouting out a point here. Three times, 
A man who was blind confesses his ignorance while he's in the process of gaining true spiritual insight. Verse 12, they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Verse 25, he answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. Verse 36, he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? He confesses his ignorance while he's growing in the light and in knowledge. Three times. Secondly, three times the Pharisees make confident statements about what they know of Jesus, and yet we see them going deeper and deeper into ignorance and spiritual blindness. Verse 16, the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. Verse 24. Give glory to God. Because we know that this man is a sinner. We know. Verse 29. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man. We don't know where he comes from. You see what John's doing? This takes us back. To the early theme. Of knowing Jesus. We talked about it weeks ago. Uh, in the prologue, verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. John 1.31, John the Baptist said, you did not know him. Chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus, the first time he comes, Nicodemus the Pharisee, now we see him process and grow, but this is the first time. And he says, we know that you're a teacher from God. John is clearly delineating and warning between the false confidence that comes uh, based on tradition and assumption versus the true experiential knowledge of knowing him. Remember the word meno, to abide in him? 63 times that word. That's what John is shouting in this remarkable chapter, this self-contained chapter. Now, some of you might have noticed, I sent you out an email this morning with a little teaser. Did anybody notice that? That this chapter, starting at about 150 AD, this chapter was read uh, at baptisms. And baptismal candidates were expected to know this, but it was read and taught. Because what they saw was this is not only about physical healing, uh, physical sight, but spiritual sight. And so he makes mud and he sends him to the pool of Siloam and he, he's cleansed and he sees. So isn't it interesting that this passage, this chapter was read for centuries by the way, just as a fun little aside, I've got a friend who is uh, a retired bus driver, and he's traveled with us several times. And, uh, oh, I think it was about a year and a half ago, maybe two and a half, I'm not sure. It was a January trip when we were in Uganda. We were in a really remote <coughs> village. We were the first outsiders there since 1979, I think. And anyway, we're praying for the sick and doing the medicine and the water and all that. And God's doing great things. But... God goes, um, Al goes to pray for this lady, and the Lord tells him to do something. Mm -hmm. 
And he says, I can't do that. And it doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he kneels down and he spits in the dirt and he makes some mud and he puts it on her eyes. And she's healed. Mm -hmm. It was hot dog. <laughs> Two days later, there's another blind person. He goes, I know what to do. <laughs> puts it on her eyes and now she's just got muddy blind eyes. <laughs> I thought that was such a great story. It's all about dependence on the Lord. Just before we wrap it up, uh, are there any comments? What did you think of this passage, this chapter? Did it open up some things tonight? Any questions or comments? Sometimes Jerry asks really hard questions. So, when he made the mud, he spit, which was like really gross and unholy, so to say, by, you know, with all the cleansiness rules that they had. And do you think that he did that because he knew he was coming against the religious powers? So it was kind of like a little, you know, like yes. so he could have just said, open your eyes. Yeah. He could have washed them. He could have yeah. put a leaf on them or something, but he did something that was absolutely against their cleansing rules. Isn't that interesting? I never thought of that. You come up with the most interesting things. Uh, I think that might be very possible. I've always just thought, well, he heard Papa, and so that's what he did, but maybe he was making a strong statement right there. Because he knew it would be religious. Yeah, he sure did. He sure did. And then when, when the guy had to leave the synagogue, is that kind of like how Muslims are now when they find Christ in their house from their family? Yes. Would it be similar? Absolutely. And, and in fact, I just found out that uh, a good friend of mine is going to be joining us next week in Kenya. And um, uh, because this is going all over, I won't even say his name. But a Muslim who came to Christ, who still lives uh, as a Muslim follower of Jesus, which is frankly what we encourage people to do. Um, when, we, when we see Sikhs come to Christ, we say, please don't get rid of your turban and cut off your beard. Because that's got nothing to do with your faith. That's just cultural. And why would you cut yourself off? But they pay a price. Uh, the uh, Muslims pay a big price. Uh, sometimes the Hindus pay a very big price. Just like this fella. Except this guy, it's even more. Because of him being blind and being a total outcast. And now all the possibilities changed. And yet he says, no, I'm going to follow you. Any other comments? I'm always <clears throat> fascinated how um, when, when people come to really see Jesus, Jesus isn't coming and saying, uh, <clears throat> you know, you have to forgive. Uh, you know, I forgive your sins, and therefore you are now no longer a sinner. But rather, it's a presentation of, do you believe? It's a very positive thing. And we talked a little bit about that. But it's interesting to note that, at least from my surface research, because I haven't looked at all the passages yet, but the people respond in worship, in relationship to Him. Mm -hmm. And in our culture today, it's, Oh, I no longer feel like I'm a sinner. And it's like two different two different responses. One feels free from sin, but it doesn't lead to worship. We almost have to teach them 
how to worship. Back then, they were brought up in an atmosphere of worship. And so it was almost, oh, it makes sense. This who this is he who I will worship. Yes. Does that? Yeah, it does. And, and we're going to tie in with that as we get to the crucifixion. Okay. Uh, because, uh, because you're right. The, the gospel has become more about sin management and sin removal than abundant life. Right. right. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's a very unfortunate shift that we've fallen into. That, that is, well, I like that. Okay. Yes, sir. So back up in verse 4, <laughs> he said, We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Do you? Okay, I'm, I've always been yeah. questioning what... Most exactly theologians would say, if you look at some commentaries on that, the most common thing, and I think they're right, is... He is juxtaposing, um, uh, we are alive right now and we can do the works of the Father. There's going to come a day and you never know when it'll come. And that's it. You can't be, you can't be doing the works of the Father. You can't be evangelizing. You can't be healing the sick because you're with them. So I think that's what it's about. <laughs> well, you're into the next world. I think we're going to go from one to the other existence in a moment. We won't even notice. It'll just be too... And on that happy metaphysical note. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We do hope you're enjoying this series. If you've got questions for Steve to discuss with his next guest in a few weeks, email them to podcast at impactnations.com. Also, be sure to visit impactnations.org to learn more about that journey to Kenya and all sorts of great things that are going on all around the world. Have a great week.